0: I remember some years ago attending a mainline church in Green Valley, Arizona. Uh, My in-laws were there and went there and they were excited to share it with us. It was large and growing and they knew that we were religious and so they thought this would be the kind of thing that we would be into. This would be our thing. So Sunday morning, uh, we headed out and what I saw there that Sunday was something that I have Rarely, if ever, experienced before. Uh, the church was large, lots of retirees. We must have been in our 20s at the time. The choir was huge. Uh, the building was impressive. The ministers were friendly. Everything was very attractive. Uh, it's all moved right along. The preacher was engaging. The service was short. We must have been out of there in an hour. Back at their house afterwards, my father-in-law asked me what I thought of it. Honestly, I said, there was nothing Christian about it. I might as well have been at the Chamber of Commerce or a a Kiwanis Club meeting. My father-in-law, not missing a beat, just smiled and said, Yeah, I think you're right. I I think that's what I like about it. (laughs) It's a funny thing. You, you You can remove Gautama Buddha from Buddhism and still have the philosophy and religion of Buddhism. You can remove the historical Marx from Marxism and still have the same economic and historical theses working or not working. But you can't take Christ out of Christianity. Many have tried, but Jesus is simply too much at the heart of it. The stubborn centrality of Jesus just refuses to budge. Even the liberal Protestant churches in our own neighborhood that deny everything conceivable about the historical Jesus from their pulpits, have their sermons contradicted by the very Lord's Supper they celebrate, which is rooted in Jesus' last night, his prediction of his death, his interpretation of its meaning, and his promise of his return. The truth depicted in the celebration of their sacraments rebuffs the denials that undergird and comprise their sermons. The person and work of Jesus is remarkably and stubbornly central to Christianity. That's what we've been seeing in our study of Matthew's gospel this year. As Jesus has gone around teaching, it is undeniable that the main thing he teaches about is himself. It's not fundamentally nonviolent ethics or social change. It's not fundamentally training people to exercise miraculous healing powers. He teaches about the coming of the kingdom of heaven, which the Jews were anxiously and eagerly anticipating and awaiting. But he centers that kingdom squarely and personally on himself and the work that he had come uniquely to do. This is what he taught the crowds. This is what he especially taught his chosen disciples. About a third of Jesus' public teaching seems to have been in parables. We've been looking at the parables in Matthew chapter 13. So let's turn there now. You'll find that if you use the Bibles provided on page 818 and 819. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, the big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verses that come after it. Just put there later for ease of reference. So here in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, we have really one of the treasure troves of Jesus' teaching. There are five sections like this in Matthew's gospel. Uh, a couple of years ago, we looked over the most famous, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, and uh, the chapter 10, where he was instructing his disciples when he was about to send them on. Uh, the fourth large section of teaching in Matthew's gospel is about the life of the church. That's chapter 18. And the last is about the preparation for the judgment. That's chapters 23 to 25. This morning we're in the middle of those five big segments of teaching in Matthew's gospel, the the third of those great sections here, chapter 13, in which he gives parables about what the kingdom of heaven, the rule and reign of God, is like. And at the very center of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of heaven is himself, his own person and work. Now, the identity of Jesus is at the very center of this section of Matthew's Gospel. From the confusion of John the Baptist back at the beginning of chapter 11, on to Peter's confession clearly in Matthew chapter 16, we are on a path of trying to understand who exactly is Jesus. And that's what he is teaching these parables in chapter 13 are preparing the disciples for the rejection that's about to be ramped up from the end of chapter 13. If you look down at the next verses we have for next week, you're going to see Jesus there being rejected. And that's increasingly what happens in the gospels. So what Jesus has been doing with all this teaching is preparing his disciples for this reality. If you look back in chapter 13, you see all these different parables pressing in on questions about how people will respond to Jesus. So let's look at the section of parables as it finishes today, verses 44 to 52. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full... Men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So I want us to think today about Jesus in these parables, about finding Jesus in these first two parables, about understanding Jesus in that parable of the fish, verses 47 to 50, and about sharing Jesus in verses 51, 52. So finding Jesus in those first two parables, understanding Jesus, 47 to 50, and then sharing Jesus. Fifty-one, fifty-two, And I pray that as we do, Jesus will be asserting his stubborn centrality in your own life and thoughts. First, let's look at these two parables here in verses 44 to 46 about finding Jesus as your treasure, as we were just singing about in a couple of our songs this morning. Look there again at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Well, here Jesus inspired his followers with these two stories. There's much we could say about these greatly loved little parables. They're pretty much the same, except for one aspect. What's different between the two parables? It's a Wednesday night moment. Someone, what's different between the two parables? Don't speak up unless you're w- r- willing for me to say no. All right, so just fair warning. They're so similar. What's different between them? Somebody put up a hand. Drew? Exactly. Exactly. The farmer in in the first one's not looking for it. But the merchant in the second one is looking for it. That's the one difference everybody seems to notice, and I think correctly, between these two parables that are set up. And I think that difference is there for a reason. I think it's the nature of humans when we approach religion to think of it as we do some things, and that makes and causes God to do something. Jesus deliberately gives these two parables to show... That's not determinative of who finds this treasure. It's not the result of our earnest fasting and prayer that God finally goes, okay, okay, you've shown you want me enough, I will show myself to you. No, God is just not like that with sinners. No, God is completely just to damn us because he is good and because we have not been and are not. And yet, in his extraordinary love, he reveals himself to many sinners, some of whom seem to be looking for him, like that merchant of pearls, and some of whom weren't even bothering to search. He just turns up like that treasure buried in the field. Well, I think that's one thing we can learn from that difference between these two parables. But I don't think that's the main point of these two parables. The main point of these two parables are pretty clear, I think. And sometimes they seem contradictory to people. First, Jesus is clear in verse 44 that finding the kingdom of heaven is like finding a treasure. It is exciting. It brings joy. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. So Jesus is comparing the kingdom of heaven to a hidden treasure. That seems a little bit like two parables earlier in the chapter, the mustard seed and the leaven because it's something small that becomes something great. Well, just looking at the ground doesn't seem like anything great. Ah, but there could be treasure hidden in that ground. It's a little bit like that. So this parable is part of this trail leading toward Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God, in Matthew 16, verse 15, where Peter Peter becomes a model for all of us, finding the kingdom of heaven. So this farmer in Jesus' story may simply have been going through a normal day at work, being hired to plow someone's field. But this day turned out to be the best day this farmer had ever had. He was just faithfully doing his work. He was plowing and oh, what's that in the ground? Look at that. It's a treasure worth so much. I'm gonna sell everything I have and get this land so I can get this treasure legitimately. And then I'm gonna be richer than I've ever been in my life. He was happy about it. You can tell. Then in his joy, it says in verse 44, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Before we get to his going and selling all that he has and buying that field, let's just stop and appreciate the joy for a moment. This man was rejoicing over this treasure. Now, if you're visiting with us today, I don't know if you can tell we're joyful by the way we sing. I don't know what we look like to you. Uh, From the church you come from, we may sound like we're having a funeral here. You know? (laughs) Or you may have thought, I've never heard a happier group of people in my life. Well, whatever you're coming from, I'm letting you know that we are happy in the Lord. We, we rejoice in what he has done for us. Knowing God in Christ is wonderful. We Christians are part of a religion fundamentally not of sadness, but of joy. Not fundamentally a religion of resignation, but of rejoicing. Not of loss, but gain. That's why we end up talking about Jesus so much, even when we're not in church. Some of you may work with some Christians and may be surprised how much we talk about Jesus. But friend, if you just won the lottery, I'm guessing you would talk about it to some other people at work. It would be something that is filling you up with joy because of what you value. Well, that's how we Christians feel about Jesus. Even though some of us have been Christians for decades we still find ourselves wanting to talk to other people about what it is that the Lord has done for us. So my Christian brothers and sisters, if God has provided children for you to love and care for, pray that they can see your joy in Christ. They're going to see a lot of other things. There's just no way they can't. They're even going to be, at some points, be the subject of, of, uh, or the object of your sin. But pray that in the midst of it all, they can see a sincere joy that you have in knowing the Lord. That you can leave that testimony with them. Some of this joy we see in verse 44. How do you have that joy? Well, some people seem to have more than others just naturally, chemically. If so, I hope you don't feel extra holy. You know, you're just blessed by the Lord, praise God. Others struggle more with this joy read scripture. Give yourself time to meditate on the truths of it. Let it sink in. Pray and wait on the Lord. If you want some some help in thinking about that further, I think John Piper's book, When I Don't Desire God, is one of his better books. John Piper, When I Don't Desire God. Get a copy of that and read through it slowly. And just join us week by week as we gather every Lord's Day to build our joy together through singing and praying, through fellowship And hearing and understanding the word, I always find understanding the word better builds my joy. I see more what's going on. I understand more of what's going on. And by observing baptisms, hearing testimonies, like we're going to a little bit later today, and taking the Lord's Supper together. Well, that's the joy. The other emphasis, which is in both of these little parables, is on that little phrase in verse 44, he goes and sells all he has. Joy is part of following Christ. But so is the cost right now. He says in verse 44, sells all that he has. And you see that again in verse 46 with the pearl merchant. Having found the treasure in verse 44, what is this man all about now? He is single-hearted, single-minded, like the pure in heart. Jesus talked about back in Matthew 5 in the the Sermon on the Mount. He is going for, for this treasure with everything that he has. He's putting all of his eggs in one basket farmer correctly perceives the value of the field and its treasure. The pain of what that farmer loses is exceeded by the joy of what he gains. It is his joy that powers his sacrifice, isn't it? It's like in 1922 in Zambia when an antelope hunter accidentally stumbled upon what was to become one of the largest copper mines in the world. He was just shooting wild game and when he was going over to investigate he saw where some of the bullets had hit and he knew enough geology to understand this ground is rich with copper so he got some associates and they immediately sold just about everything they could sell and bought that land he understood the potential value it turned out to be a hugely good investment for them became one of the largest copper mines in the world and friends jesus is worth more than all the copper in the world. Spiritually speaking, this is the way every Christian does it. We find this treasure, and we are willing to trade everything that we have in order to get it. This was the Apostle Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul really is a pattern for all Christians here, like this farmer in verse 44 and the merchant in verse 45. Let's look again at verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, Pearls then were regarded, kind of like we regard diamonds now, as the the highest of of good and symbol of value. Verse 46, Who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So this is the point both parables are making. He sold all that he had. It's uh, what the rich young ruler later in chapter 19 will not do. He says he wants all this from Jesus, but actually... When Jesus told us that the cost, he would rather keep the things he has than whatever it is he thinks Jesus has to offer. So Jesus is telling us through this parable that this is how we find here. Now, if you're considering this very question today, you should part with whatever you need to part with. Whatever sin, whatever value, whatever it takes in order to trust in Christ. You've sinned against God. God will judge you because he's good. Your only hope is what he has done in Christ for all who've sinned but will turn and trust in him. Jesus came and lived a life of perfect goodness himself. He had no need to die, but he died as a substitute, as in the place of sinners like you and me. He died taking the punishment that we've deserved if we will trust in him. And he was raised from the dead by his heavenly father, And he rules and reigns. He promises to return. And this is the one in whom we are to trust. This is the one through whom we can have a renewed relationship of love and acceptance with our Heavenly Father. The kingdom of heaven exceeds in value everything that you would hold on to instead of it. So turn loose of that other stuff that would keep you from God. The merchant here correctly perceived the value of that pearl. He was not a fool when he sold all that he had in order to get it. So forsake this vain passing world and embrace the incomparable treasure that is freely offered to us in Jesus Christ. There is no lasting joy. There is no lasting peace. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ, who is the very heart of the good news, so friends, seek and find. Then sell what you must in order to buy. I love that passage in Hebrews 10:34 where we read, "For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one." You see, because of that confidence we have in Christ, what we have in Christ, that gives us joy. And that then powers our self-sacrifice now. Without that joy at first, obedience becomes very, very hard. Now, some of you, being here on Capitol Hill, are ambitious in your workplace. What would it mean for you to know the same kind of excitement and ambition in your relationship with God spiritually? I thank God for how many people in this church are like these figures. I thank God for how many of your stories I know and how many of them in aspects show this same kind of decision. I'm going to leave all of this to follow Christ. I will sacrifice even these relationships if I need to in order to have Christ. Some of you were surprised to find this treasure. Some of you weren't looking, but you have. And you've sold all that you have in terms of family and friends and aspirations and treasured sins in order to have Christ and follow him. And you have made a good decision. We'll hear more testimonies like this in just a little while from those being baptized today. Much more we could say about this, but these two parables are precious. You're going to keep reading these, you'll remember these. Let's move on to this next one, this parable in verses 47 to 50, which is about understanding Jesus. This parable is almost exactly like one we looked at last week. The parable of the wheat and the weeds. So if you remember that one earlier in chapter 13, this one is like that one. It's not so much about hell. Though he does teach about hell in verse 50, he says the same thing about it there he does when he's explaining the parable of the wheat and the weeds up in verse 42. But the thing about Jesus' words about hell is, They were not news. This is what people understood at the time. When Jesus said this, he was reinforcing the judgment that they understood would come to those who had sinned, who had done what was wrong. It may shock some people today reading it, but I don't think the disciples hearing this were shocked. I don't think the scribes who heard him say things like this were shocked. Now, what was revolutionary in Jesus' teaching here on the kingdom of heaven Was that it could genuinely be coming even while God's people continued to endure the bad? That the kingdom of heaven could genuinely be arriving and the bad stuff going on still continued. You see, the kingdom of heaven ends, to use the language of the image of the parable here, ends in sorting on the beach, but it begins in the fishing. When that net is put down and dragged through the Sea of Galilee, there is going to be no immediate disappearance of Rome, Jesus was saying, or other bad guys, bad fish. The coming of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying, is different than the end of the age. Jesus was helping them to understand the opposition that he had been facing And that was going to mount and that they would face. So what Jesus is doing here by this parable, he is equipping his disciples with the truth about him and his coming. So with the coming of the kingdom of heaven, the fall had begun to be reversed. But that reversal would not be complete until the end of the age. Therefore, the coming of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus is not the same as the end of the age. This was news to most of the Jews of Jesus' day. They expected a big kabang all at once. One return, everything happens. Number of problems with that. One, that's not what God had planned. Two, that's not what the Old Testament carefully read teaches. Three, everybody goes to hell. It's the coming of judgment. By having these two things, which once you understand Jesus' teaching, you begin to read the Old Testament, you go like, oh. This is what the sacrificial system was teaching. This is what the Day of Atonement was teaching. This is what the Passover was teaching. This is what Isaiah 52, 53 was teaching. There's all kinds of aspects of the Messiah's work which were not going to be immediately establishing a kingdom all and only of the good. But there would first be a saving work. And then after centuries, and we now know millennia, of time for people to repent and believe and be saved then there will come the judging work of the Messiah it's this separation this distinction that's there in the old testament that was not appreciated at the time that was the revolutionary note in Jesus teaching and that's what he's teaching so clearly in the parable of the wheat and the weeds and here in the parable of the good and bad fish as i say you look back through chapter 13 here, and you can see these points of these parables, Jesus is teaching them to prepare them. If you just look at chapter 13, the parable of the sower, it shows there are going to be different responses to the same word thrown out, taught. Uh, the parable of the weeds is the same purpose that I'm, I'm sharing now from the parable of the fish, that everything doesn't happen immediately, that salvation is different than Judgment. Uh, The mustard seed and the leaven, well, that shows them that the kingdom of heaven can appear very, very small, but it can end up being great. Well, they all knew it could be great, but the surprising thing is it could ever appear small. And then these parables of the joy of finding it and the worth, worth giving up everything for it. Uh, These two parables in 44 and 45 and 46. And now here, this one, just reinforcing that idea that there are two different comings, and that there is a time when the kingdom of heaven begins to come in Jesus, and then a time when it will be completed at the end of the age. Well, with all this in mind, let's look at the parable again, see if it makes a little bit more sense to you now. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. This net, to be clear, was probably a dragnet about six feet deep Hundreds and hundreds, it could be even literally thousands of feet long. Uh, it would have cork floats on the top, lead weights on the bottom, and it was very common in the Sea of Galilee. You put it in there and you would take hours dragging it around, sometimes two boats, sometimes one guy on the shore and one boat in a fan sort of direction, and you would be catching everything that's out there. If whatever's floating or whatever's died and begun to float, you're, you're getting everything in this dragnet, and then you're going to spend hours pulling it ashore and sitting there and sorting. So this image Jesus is using is a very common one. Everybody's going to understand it. So verse 48, when it was full, men drew it ashore. Now what's interesting is that difference in time between when the net is put in the water, probably very early in the day, maybe even right before sunrise often, and then when it's drawn in, mid-morning, later morning. So a lot of time has passed. The fishing has gone on, But then there does come the time for sorting. When it's full, verse 48, men drew it ashore. And that means in the plural because these huge nets took lots of people to cooperate. And then we see in verse 48, they sat down, they sorted the good into containers, but threw the bad away. Uh, That bad maybe means they were dead before they were caught. Maybe they were just separating ceremonially clean fish that they could eat from ceremonially unclean fish like catfish that had no scales and the law forbade them to eat it. Maybe that's what he meant by that. But he says in verse 49, interpreting it, he says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So that would mean separate those who are rejecting Jesus from those who are truly his disciples. So Jesus was teaching that ultimately his disciples would be vindicated and the rejecters judged, as we see in verse 50, which again repeats almost exactly Verse 42. Verse 50, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it may not look like it right now, but rejectors of Jesus will be punished. And their punishments will be infinitely more grievous than anything the disciples of Jesus ever gave up for purchasing the field or the pearl of great price. Friend, is this to be your fate? what's written here in verse 50. I pray not. Repent of your sins, trust in Christ. He is your only hope before a good God. I think one rich man in a Manhattan jail thought he could cheat justice by hanging himself. And our poor secular news reporters were at a loss to know what to do because so many of them don't understand that there is a just God and that this man has removed himself from all the mercy of temporarily being spared from that final justice through whatever means it could be meted out by the state of New York. And instead, he had put himself immediately into the hands of one who is fully just, finally and forever just, whose justice will have no mercy in it against sin, unrepented of. That man did not escape justice. He foolishly delivered himself unprepared into the hands of eternal justice. What is it our church's statement of faith says, summarizing the Bible's teaching, the last couple of articles, we believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked, that such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in his esteem, while all such as continue in impenitence, that is, they don't repent, and unbelief are in his sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. We believe that the end of the world is approaching that at that last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place, that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy, and that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. Now something that was assumed and implied in what Jesus was teaching here in these parables, was it this final day sorting out, which would come finally when Christ returns? Today's not the day for final sorting out unless it is for you personally because you die, or if he does return today. Today is a time when the kingdom is continuing to, to grow as people hear and some respond in repentance and faith. In this time, that final sorting out is beginning to appear as people divide over Jesus. You're beginning to get dress rehearsals of that final division of the last day as people respond to Jesus. Those who are rejecting or hardening themselves are preparing themselves to be judged. And those who are repenting and turning are preparing themselves to see this treasure for the joy that it is and preparing to participate in an entirely different eternal experience. That was beginning to happen even in Jesus' day as he taught, as people responded differently. That difference in response to Jesus continues on. Christians, you know how difficult it can be to bring up religion at the office, maybe sometimes with members of your family. For so many, this ultimate division over who Jesus is, begins to appear even in this life. Now, a great, huge juicy asterisk to this is people who are sometimes opposed can end up being very, very in favor of Jesus. So many of us here in this room came to know Christ as children. That's a wonderful testimony. It's a testimony every parent wants for every child. But the other truth is that many of us here in this room did not come to know Jesus until after a period of very self-conscious rebellion. I, for one, was an agnostic. I, with my words, many times in front of other people, denied God and Jesus and everything. And I'm sure I'm not the only one in this room because I know a lot of your testimonies. So just because we're beginning to see previews of what that final judgment will be, never decide about any individual you know what the final fate is. Because as long as they are breathing, there is chance for a wonderful story of grace. And you can be a part of that wonderful story of grace as you love them, pray for them, continue to be a good person member of their family to them or employer or friend love them pray that they'll see the joy that you have in Christ and invite them into it and pray that they will come that's what we want to see some have wondered if this parable is really a forewarning to Jesus disciples about nominal Christianity about there being bad fish in the church I don't think that's what this parable is fundamentally about that's an implication it's certainly true Uh, But the the kingdom of God was not just about the church. The kingdom of God is about the whole world. And so these bad fish are not just like hypocrites in the Baptist church. They're like evil atheists who do bad things and hypocritical Christians who do bad things. It's It's like the whole world is what's in view in these fish, these very many fish of every kind that Jesus talks about here. So as a church, we're a community that meets here today in confidence of the perfect justice that is coming. Our joy isn't dimmed by the thought of the guilty finally escaping God's notice or his punishment. No righteous person will be left unvindicated. No guilty person will be left unpunished. There will be no moral indecision on the last day. In this parable, and the one earlier in the chapter of the wheat and the weeds, there are only two categories of person. The repentant and the unrepentant. And friends, what God really thinks about sexual immorality... It can be debated from culture to culture. It can be debated on Twitter. It can be debated ad infinitum in the press of this country or that. But one day, the last day, will reveal it as clearly as God's own word. Jesus gave us this parable to help us understand Jesus, to understand what he was doing and would do. The last couple of verses in this block of teaching are really encouraging the disciples in sharing Jesus. I and mean, not just Jesus, but all that he was teaching them. And along with that, the Old Testament scriptures too. Jesus was instructing the disciples that they were to instruct others. That's what this means, this image of scribes. What Jesus is saying here in verse 52 is that the scribe discipled, that is trained for the kingdom of heaven, explains both the new about Jesus and the Old, the Scripture of the Old Testament, as it is understood in light of Jesus' coming. You see Jesus' question here to the disciples in verse 51. Have you understood these things? And they said to him, yes. Now you see, he says all these things. He's really summarizing here his concern throughout the entire chapter, and Jesus is pressing this question on them about all seven of the parables which preceded this question, and understanding is what he wants to know if they have. Do you understand? That's central to this chapter. You look, look back up at uh, verse 11. They're asking about parables, and he says to them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He explains the parables to them. That understanding is what he's working for. That understanding is a gift. Then over in verse 19, you see as he explains the parable of the sower, verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And then you contrast that with verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty and another thirty. Okay, so what does this mean? It means when I preach a sermon and you don't understand what I'm saying, you can judge me all you want for my fancy doctoral vocabulary, But friends, it is in your interest to try to understand, right? That's for you to do. I'll do my best to prepare, but all the work for the sermon is not just on the part of the preacher. You, the hearer, also have work to do. So you want to go away and make sure you understand it. Talk to your family that we're here about it. Talk to your friends. Make sure you're getting the main point. You're understanding what it means. You're understanding what it means in your own life as well. Friends, there is no religion on the planet that I know of that is more concerned about understanding than Christianity. Yes, the emotions and experiences are involved, necessarily so, but they're involved as responses, as effects of our understanding and apprehension of the truth. So if you are here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to resolve to continue reading Matthew's gospel, to try to understand the truth about Jesus. Because that's how you're going to come to understand the deepest truths about yourself. Keep learning about who Jesus is. The more you understand that, the more you will understand whom God has made you to be. So this is a great question for the disciples then. And it's a great question for us now. We may be like these disciples here who were understanding what they were being taught. But you know, we could think we're understanding and really not be. We could be self-deceived and we we also we could simply be confused we could have it mixed up ideas that's where a local church becomes so helpful to us where we get to know each other and we let them really get to know us and what we're thinking what we're understanding and then we can talk about things and we can explain things to each other and we can see things that oh maybe I wasn't understanding so well but what she said really helped there okay that makes more sense okay I can see what that's what that's like so let's look again at verse 52 he said to them Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, therefore, that is, if they understood, which they say they did, then they were ready to share with others the truths about Jesus. So therefore, since you say you understand, and he's not suggesting they don't understand, therefore, they could be scribes. Now, a scribe was normally understood as one who was considered a scholar of the Old Testament law and writings and prophets. Uh, The classic picture of this is Ezra, as he presents himself in Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That's an Old Testament scribe. That would be the scribes of Jesus' day. But what Jesus is saying now is that those discipled for the kingdom of heaven must themselves be teachers, scribes, familiar with God's word and with its meaning and application, So such disciples literally teach the truth about the kingdom of heaven. This is what they have been taught, so this is what they teach. They have been trained, or literally here, discipled for the kingdom of heaven. And to finish verse 52, Jesus says that such a one discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So this is not merely an exhortation to continue in spiritual progress. The old is everything you've already learned, the new are the lessons still in front of you. Very subjective. I don't think Jesus meant that. I don't think anybody listening to him that day understood him to mean that. When he said new, people understood he meant the teachings about the kingdom of heaven that they had just been hearing these parables about, including himself and his role in it. And old would be the scriptures, the things they had learned in the scriptures. Jesus is here specifically intending his disciples to understand the secrets that were new to them, the secrets of the old that were revealed in the new. So, this is really an eighth parable in this chapter, and it functions as a guide of how to use the understanding the disciples have been given of the other seven parables. So, brothers and sisters, notice that this treasure is not merely the new. Some Christians, they're just only about the New Testament. Very interesting here, here includes in the treasure the old. The old is part of the treasure. It's the new and the old as they help to explain and unfold each other. And it's especially as it all expands our understanding of Jesus himself in his own person and work that he had come to do and that he would return to do. So Jesus here is not teaching his disciples to reject the Old Testament, but instead to understand the Old Testament promises better than so many of the scribes of their own day did. They were misunderstanding the scriptures they thought they were experts in. If the old is the teaching of the Old Testament and the new is the teaching of and about Jesus, then the very center of the new of Jesus' teaching was his own person and work. He was the prophet that that Moses had promised in Deuteronomy 18 would come like him. It's been said so many times, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. If we would be understanding and teaching God's word to others, we must understand how Jesus has taught and the revelation he brings and gives, the New Testament, how it relates to the already received revelation of the Old Testament. And what we find is that the New gives us the keys to better understand the Old. And that's why Jesus uses the image here in this final parable about parable teachers like himself, that they are like a master of a house. That is, they have everything at their disposal. They can bring out treasures new. They can bring out treasures old. There's a role and a place for all of them. All of them are to the benefit of the guests that are being generously provided for. Jesus was modeling this very thing that he was describing. Matthew here in the gospel was recounting the same thing. Do you doubt that the Old Testament is relevant for today? I just went last night to one of my favorite books in my library, The Atonement by Leon Morris. 1983, he was a New Zealand uh, New Testament scholar in the second half of the 20th century. Great book. What's on the atonement, that is the sacrifice of Christ. So surely you're thinking, a book on the atonement, that's going to be all about the New Testament books of like Romans and Hebrews, But friend, you open up that book and you look at it and what you find is at least half of the book is about the Old Testament. Morris spends the book explaining the way that God had prepared his people to specially understand what Jesus would do by teaching them about the significance of the covenant. By instituting sacrifices, substituting for sinners. By establishing the Day of Atonement in Israel. And the Passover with the teachings and practices surrounding that. Friends, to unhitch the cross from Isaiah 52 and 53 is to blind yourself to the meaning of the cross. If you ever hear anybody telling you to unhitch the New Testament from the Old, flee, flee, flee. It's an early church heresy. It's been repeated many times by well-meaning people in the last 2,000 years. It shows a profound lack of Scripture reading and Scripture understanding. Because the more you understand the Old Testament, the more you will be stunned how much it points to the New Testament. And the more you understand the New Testament, the more you will come back to understanding, oh, this in the Old Testament, and this in the Old Testament, and this in the Old Testament, from great themes like sacrifice and substitution to the most minute things. What did God want to do with Jonah? Bring a great Gentile nation to itself. What did Jonah not want to do? Bring a great Gentile nation to itself. Where did God take... Take Jonah? Well, he called him to go to Nineveh. But where did Jonah go? To Joppa. And what did he do? Hop in a boat to avoid God? Really? And so Peter, whose name was Simon, remember? So that's going to be Shimon. He's named after the Maccabees. His whole family are revolutionaries, probably. Where does God take Peter, this revolutionary disciple of Jesus? To Joppa in Acts chapter 10. And what does he do there? Gives him a vision about going to a Roman oppressor captain, Cornelius, going into his house and telling him the gospel. What will God do? He will accomplish his purpose over the ages. Joppa of Jonah is Joppa of Peter. He is not going to be thwarted in his international purposes. Friends, that's a little detail. There are thousands of things like that in the Old and New Testaments. The more you know your Old and New Testaments, the more you're going to see riches unbelievable. So friends, this is why Christians have always thought it was important to have an educated ministry for the churches. Different churches have expressed this in different ways. But when Christians look for elders, especially for those who are going to be the main people set aside for teaching and preaching God's word, they look for elders who are educated in studies that will help them understand the Bible and preach it and teach it to you. That's what we give our lives to do. You are paying me to sit around and read my Bible and give speeches like this to you. This is pretty much what we're doing. And this is what's been happening for 2,000 years since Jesus gave the Great Commission. This is how Christianity has become the largest religion in the world. Not because of some centralized authority in Rome, but because a little group of Christians sets aside some of their money, pays somebody who they think could teach well, gets them to study the Bible, then teach them every week. They grow and continues to prosper, and they raise up more pastors, and then what happens? It just keeps going. Thank you, church, for how generous you are in supporting folks going to seminary to be pastors and supporting our internship program, we intend to be a real pain in Satan's side. We, we hope we're small enough. He won't notice as much. But we would like to punch above our weight when it comes to giving him problems. And we can only do that because you guys are ridiculously generous in giving lots of money that basically doesn't serve this church immediately, but serves lots of other churches by trying to do exactly this, to train them to be masters of the house, people who can handle the word well. But of course, even the best trained scribes are not our hope. We've seen how so-called worship leaders and friends and authors and pastors can go astray. It's true that one of the very disciples here that Jesus was teaching, who said, yes, I understand, would end up deserting Jesus and betraying him. But friends, no lasting faith is ever built on Christ's servants. It's built on Christ. Christ is the one in whom we trust. He is the one that will never fail us. So let's pray for each other to be good scribes and that handle God's word well. The Old and the New Testament, let's pray for our pastors. Let's pray for the husbands and fathers. Let's pray for the mothers. Let's pray especially for single parents as they lead their families, that God will supply for them and give them all the wisdom they need given to them. Let's pray that we will all be scribes who are sharing Jesus with those we can. Friends, when you find this treasure, the kingdom of heaven, it's worth all that you have. Everything. And what this means is that the true religion that Jesus taught is worth your whole life. It's not some weekend on vacation. It's not something you do with only 5 or 10 or or 20% of your time or money. In fact, for the ones who truly follow him, it's what determines what you do with all of your time. With all of your money. Other religions... They're much nicer in that sense. So if you're here shopping around for religions today, Christianity should be your last stop. Other religions will sell themselves to you far more cheaply. They only want you to do certain things. They want you to wear certain things or not wear certain things. They want you to do certain things or not do certain things. Believe this doctrine. Adopt this practice. They just want part of you. And even that is too high a price to pay. Because as Jesus says here, when you find the real treasure, the pearl of great price, the kingdom of heaven, it will be worth all that you have. And it seems from these stories that that's the only way you gain such a pearl. You gain such a treasure by valuing it above all else. Because Jesus calls for total devotion. David Wang came to understand Jesus, Jesus' centrality and his worthiness and to savingly believe in him at age 20 back in 1913 in Shandong province between Beijing and Shanghai in the east of China. He got married and after some years of formal education because he wanted to go into the pastorate, he became a pastor of a new church meeting in Qingdao, a busy industrial city on the coast of the Yellow Sea in Shandong province. Twelve years into his pastorate, the Japanese army invaded and took over the city. So from 1938 to 1945, Pastor Wang faithfully pastored that church through difficult challenges, only to have new ones arise when the communist army took over Qingdao in June of 1949. In December of 1950, local communist officials came to Pastor Wang and said, hey, can we use your church building because it was a nice new building and a large and a prominent spot. Can we use your church building for a party conference? The church building, by the way, included Pastor Wang's own home. He lived in the basement. Can we use it for a conference? Well, the pastor knew he was sunk either way. You know, if he said yes, he was compromising. Uh, If he said no, he'd be arrested and the building confiscated. Because the Communist Party had promised lots of freedom, but he was getting reports from friends all across China how they they were reneging on their promises. In this area, in this area, this area, this area. So they came very politely. And he finally said, okay, you can use it for this conference once, but no pictures of Chairman Mao and no smoking. Just telling you what he said. Well, what happened? The officials went to the main hall and put up a huge picture of Chairman Mao, kind of like they were in a temple, and this is the God they would worship. Well, the pastor prayed hard about what to do. And with much fear and trembling, he personally went in and took down the portrait of Chairman Mel. He knew that that would bring down the wrath of the government on his head and on the heads of those he loved. But he decided it was the best thing he could do to be faithful. He needed to take down that picture to make a clear statement. And then after wrestling about it for a few days, again, trying to spare those he loved, he thought, and probably now I should just flee. I should just get out of here. I should just go away from this place. This church he had pastored for 25 years at that point. His family, his wife, his sister, four kids. So one night in January of 1951, Pastor Wang fled south. Then his eldest son, Michael, was accused in his stead. So Michael had to go through the same reasoning. And Michael fled. The pastor and the son both headed south to Canton. And after many trials, late in January 1951, Pastor David and his son Michael made it into Hong Kong, then a British colony. He was crushed thinking of his family back in Qingdao and of the congregation he had served there for 25 years now, facing, facing scrutiny and persecution in part because of him and what he had done. After three and a half years of separation from his dear wife, His wife was allowed to join him in Hong Kong. Within a few more years, all four of his children were able to join him in exile in Hong Kong. And for the rest of their lives, they were able to serve the Lord Jesus among the many fellow Chinese exiles, first in Hong Kong and then in Great Britain and elsewhere. The pastor's wife died in 1974, and he followed her to glory from London in 1983. Friends, each member of the Wang family faced countless trials to continue to be faithful to the Lord. In their lives, the call to sell all in order to obtain the kingdom included danger and uncertainty and separation from beloved family and church. What has the call to follow Jesus meant in your own life? I pray that God will give each of us the certainty that he gave to this brave family and to the Apostle Paul, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you'd give us the joy of the one in this story who found the treasure. Pray you'd give us the simple wisdom to sell all we have in order to follow you, to weigh you as more important than everything else in our lives. Help us in patience to trust you for your final judgment. And make us good stewards of the truth that you teach us about yourself from your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.